Uh, this, this past year, uh, Christy and I w- took on the endeavor of painting our kitchen cabinets. Now, let me ask you, have you ever tried painting your kitchen cabinets with your spouse? If you would like to test the strength of your relationship, this is the path you need to take. Well, there was one night through the process in which I took all the doors off of the kitchen cabinets, took them out to the garage, got them all organized. And I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and attack this project with gusto. So I got my paintbrush and I began just working over this thing, slapping the paint on there. And I just thought, man, I'm going to just be sitting pretty with my wife. Well, Christy comes out to the garage, sees the doors with horror. And I, like a little toddler, like, aren't you proud of what I've done? (laughs) And when I told her I was going to tell this story last night, she said, make sure you tell them what I said. And she said, quote, this is not a kindergarten project. (laughs) These are our kitchen doors. And so for two weeks, she had to sand all of my work and repaint and fix all of the blemishes. Now, once she finished at the end of two weeks, I thought I would jokingly say, hey, do you want me to add another coat? She didn't think that was funny at all. (laughs) You see, what she had done was complete. It was finished. It was perfect. There was nothing else to do. In fact, if I had added to her work, I would have taken away from it. Well, when we followers of Jesus gather and rally around the gospel, especially on a day like today where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we are reminding one another that Jesus has done it all. It is finished. It is complete. There is nothing else necessary to complete our salvation. And if we were to add to it, we would only take it away. In fact, this idea of being finished, this is what Jesus is driving home in John 19. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 19. As you're turning there, the the gospel of John is in the New Testament. If you're new to studying the Bible, the Bible's broken into two main sections. You've got the Old Testament. That's the the ministry and life of the people of God before Jesus. Then you've got the New Testament. That's the life and ministry of Jesus in his church after he is ascension into heaven. The book of John is an incredible book because he kind of gives his thesis at the end in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. The whole thrust of his book is evangelism. He's trying to reach people for Jesus. In fact, the great verse that we love to quote as followers of Jesus, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the gospel thrust of his entire book. He's trying to reach his readers for Christ. Well, when you get to John chapter 19, Jesus has already at this point suffered significantly. He's been tried, beaten. He's been mocked and ridiculed. He's been scourged and he's been suspended upon a cross, stapled to a tree. And it's on this cross in which he is lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth. And there he hangs. And as he's there upon the cross, the Roman soldiers begin to gamble. 
and to divide up his clothes. He then looks upon his disciple John and entrusts him to take care of his mother. And then Jesus says this in John 19, verse 28. The scripture says this. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. To Telestai, it's translated, it is finished. It's a shout of triumph. It's a proclamation of victory. Jesus is declaring that he has done everything necessary to secure our salvation through his work on the cross. When Jesus shouted from the cross, it is finished. I want you to see this morning all that that entails and what this means for us. The first thing I want you to see is that when he yells to Talestai, it means your Savior has perfectly obeyed. Your Savior has perfectly obeyed. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the first act of disobedience through our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam's disobedience, it brought evil and suffering, pain and death into the world. We see evidence of the results of the fall of Genesis 3 every day on the news and on our social media feeds. We see consequences of Genesis 3 all throughout our lives. But from Genesis to Malachi, God was pointing forward to a future Messiah, one who would come for God's people, one who would obey the law perfectly, one who would come and save the people from their sins. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 5. He says, For just as through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You see, when we get to the New Testament, we find out who he is. We discover who this Messiah is. The one that the saints throughout the Old Testament were longing to see. What's his name? Where is he from? What's he going to be like? When we get to the New Testament, we find out his name, Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, Jesus is the greater Adam who reversed the curse of sin through his death on the cross. You see, it's through Jesus' perfect obedience. He has brought grace and eternal life to all who believe upon him. You see, it's in the entire Old Testament, it's pointing forward to him. Look at verse 28. It says, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is the one through which he kept the entire Old Testament. In 1825 in Vienna, there was a man named Albert who was born into a Jewish family. He grew up and lived there in the city, but there was a Scotsman who came over to build bridges in Vienna. This Scotsman loved Jesus and encountered Albert and shared the gospel with him. Well, Albert came to faith in Christ. And after he put his faith in Jesus, he began to study the Old Testament very carefully. And what Albert discovered were more than 456 Old Testament prophecies that were pointing forward to a future Messiah. Question, how many of those 456 prophecies did Jesus keep? All of them. Every single one. 
He is the promised Messiah. He is the one the Old Testament was pointing forward to. That when we see Malachi points forward to one who will be born not in Chicago or or Jerusalem or Paris, but in Bethlehem, that's where Jesus was born. That when Zacharias says that he'll be betrayed for 30 pieces of of silver, Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver. In Psalm 22, when it says the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and in his feet, Jesus was indeed upon the cross, pierced in his hands and his feet. And that psalm written by David in Psalm 22 was written 800 years before crucifixion was ever even invented. You see, Jesus perfectly obeyed. He is the one who kept the law perfectly. He lived a sinless life that you and I couldn't live. He lived that perfect life out of perfect obedience to the Father. He kept the Old Testament law perfectly because we couldn't. You see, he perfectly obeyed on our behalf because we all have turned away, each to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, motivated by love for you, Jesus obeyed his Father all the way up through Calvary's cross. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, when Jesus cried out on the cross to tell us die, he meant everything is finished. He has perfectly kept and fulfilled all that is required of the Messiah. To tell us die means your Savior has perfectly obeyed. But number two, it means your enemy has been slain. Satan, the ancient adversary of God, appeared as a serpent in the garden to tempt our first parents to sin. Simon Peter says he's like a roaring lion seeking anyone he may devour. You see, Satan wants to devour your faith. He wants to attack what you believe. He hates anything and anyone that reflects what God is like. He is in a hot pursuit of destroying anything that represents or reflects Christ. Well, what's interesting to me is that as we look throughout the pattern of Scripture, we see that, yes, Satan hates Jesus. And yet, what we see is on that fateful day, 2,000 years ago, Satan pounced on the Son of God, using humans as instruments. He brutally tortured and killed Jesus. But... Little did the devil know that he was a pawn in the hand of the Almighty. Indeed, we see throughout the death of Jesus that it's through his death that Satan would be destroyed. Satan's demise was accomplished by his own means. God turned his efforts around and against him, for it was through the cross that Satan was tightening the noose around his own neck. For God had a bigger plan in place through the death of his son. I love how Paul says it in Colossians 2. And speaking of Jesus, he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. You see, Satan and his minions have been disarmed. They have been disgraced openly and publicly through the cross. The cross was the very means through which they thought they had victory over Jesus, but it boomeranged back on his own head. Indeed, the seed of the woman whose heel he bruised indeed crushed his own head. 
Through Jesus' death on the cross, Satan has been disarmed of his weapons against God's people. The devil's been deactivated. He's been neutralized by Jesus. The cross was the sign of his defeats. You see, his accusations against God's people no longer stick. His accusations against you about your past and all the sins that you've committed that he lobs at you and he brings before the great tribunal of God. The Lord looks upon you and says, not guilty. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. His death on the cross is enough to pay for that. And now the enemy, as he lobs his accusations against you, they no longer stick. He's the ancient serpent who's been defanged. He is an ancient serpent who's just gumming it. I love it. It's kind of like this. When I was uh, just got married with Christy, I was working at a bank and going to seminary and working at a church and trying to make ends meet. And one day a man walks into the bank, hand in his pocket, and he's got a mask over and he's doing this. And he robbed the bank. And I want to be like, hey, bro, I know that's your finger. Because if he had just pulled his hand out, it would have looked just like this. That is a picture of what's happened to Satan. His weapon that he seeks to bring against God's people, it's like his fingers in his pocket. He has been disarmed, Colossians says. His weapons have been taken away. All because of what Christ has done at the cross. When Jesus is crying out in victory to tell us die, he is announcing and proclaiming his enemy's demise. And indeed, we're looking forward to the day in Revelation 20 and 10, in which Satan and all of his demons will be cast into the lake of fire, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How will that be accomplished? All because of Tetelestai. Because of what Jesus has done through the cross. He has perfectly obeyed. Your enemy has been slayed. But number three, your sin debt has been paid. Outside of Christ, we owe a spiritual debt that we cannot pay. The debt that you and I owe to God is so great, it's impossible to pay back on our own. Man, you think millions of dollars is a lot of debt? Man, try offending an infinite God. There's no bank loan that can rescue you from spiritual bankruptcy. And it's not like you and I have locked up our debt and there's no more debt we can accrue and we can just begin paying off in monthly installments. No, day by day, our debt continues to grow the more we disobey Jesus, the more we turn away from him. You see, the whole world has a debt crisis, but it has nothing to do with money. That there is no hope that we could ever pay off the debt that we owe. But here's the good news to tell us die. Paul says in Colossians 2.14, that he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Indeed, your debt has been paid in full by Jesus through the cross. That's what God's done for you in the gospel, is that you owed a debt you couldn't pay. So Jesus steps in and pays it on your behalf. And he doesn't just pay off part of it and says, hey, good luck with the rest. He says, no, I'm paying for all of it. Charge it to my accounts. 
I am going to make a way so that there's no more debt hanging over my people. There's no more sin that is brought upon them because it's now placed upon me. This is what God's done for you in the gospel. Is that Jesus has taken your sin debt that you could never pay and he takes it gladly upon the cross. That through his shed blood, it is the perfect payment to satisfy every debt that we owe before God. I love how Elvina, uh, what's her last name? Elvina Hall uh, said this in 1865. She wrote this down. She wasn't paying attention to the sermon and she wrote these words, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And if you don't want to pay attention to the sermon and begin writing hymns like that, you have my permission. (laughs) This is such good news that we have a Savior who has paid it all. He's done everything necessary. Your sin is paid in full through his work at the cross. This week I learned something that I didn't realize. Is that in the first century, uh, whenever a financial transaction took place, they would take the receipt and at the very top, they would write the word at the very top to tell us die. It is finished. In the first service, I said back in the old days, and a kid said, in the 1980s? It's like, hey, bro, we'll go back to the first century, okay? To tell us die. It's finished. It's paid in full. There's no longer a, no longer a certificate of debt that you and I owe to God. In fact, what Paul is saying in Colossians 2 is that this record of debt of all of the sins that you and I have committed in our past, in our present, and in our future are nailed to Jesus. That he takes this laundry list of brokenness in your life and in my life, and he takes it gladly at the cross. Oh, if you would know how much you are loved by Jesus. He knows how broken you are and the inappropriate things you've seen and the inappropriate things you've said and done, all the ways you've turned your back upon him, all the things that you said, I'm gonna go my way, I'm gonna say these things, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And yet God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That even while you were at your worst, Christ was at his best. And even when you think you're unlovable, you are still loved by Jesus. And though your sin continues to increase, his mercy is more. He loves to lavish his grace upon broken people. And what happens when he does that is he gets the glory and we get him. This is what God's done for you in the gospel. When Jesus there upon the cross cries out to tell us die, he literally means it. It is finished. The debt that you owe has been paid in full by Jesus. This is what the gospel has done for this, for for us. So question is this, how can we know that this is true? It's because your king has conquered the grave. The empty tomb is proof that Tetelestai was for real. See, after screaming Tetelestai, Jesus bowed his head. Look at verse 30. He gave up his spirit. You see, Jesus was in complete control over his own death. He gave up his spirit. It was not taken from him. 
In John chapter 10, Jesus said it like this, no one can take my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. You see, this Jesus, his body was not only dead, but he was placed into a rich man's tomb. And for three days, he laid there in the grave. For three days, he was in the belly of the earth. For three days, he was presumed dead and the world rejoiced. But on the third day, Jesus came back to life. Jesus is risen. And this is the gospel. And this changes everything. If the gospel is true, and it is, it changes everything about you. It changes everything about the decisions that you make, the life you live, the trajectory that you go. And it not only affects the next five minutes or the next five months, but the next five billion years. The resurrection changes everything. Jesus really did pay for your sins in full. He has made a way through his death for you to come into a right relationship with God through him. Everything necessary was paid for by Christ. And we know it's true because the victor over death is the one who proved it in his own resurrection. That means death no longer has rule and reign over you. Death doesn't have the last word over you anymore. And though there may be a day that's coming soon, unless Christ returns, when you take your last breath, you will be more alive than you have ever been if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the tomb is empty, everything changes. And if you are in Christ, man, this fires you up. Because you're like, oh my goodness, this is true. And my life and my eternity is taken care of and secured and sealed by Jesus. But maybe you're not a follower of Christ. You've come today, you're engaging with us online, you're out in the atrium, and you've put on the outfit garb, but deep inside your heart, you know you don't know Christ. I want you to know, we desire for you to come to know Jesus. We don't want you to leave this campus without putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to walk off this campus with great, great confidence that you know Jesus. In fact, that's gonna be the invitation. It's your impact point, and it's this. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ, and you will be saved. It's the gospel that God freely offers to you. All you have to do is receive it. You grab hold of this gospel. You trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, humble yourself. Get low before God and say, God, I'm broken and I don't deserve this that you're offering me. But I believe that Jesus, you did that for me. I believe you died and rose again for me. And I'm ready to give my life completely to you. Jesus, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. And so for some of you today, you need to hear this. Stop trying and start trusting. Trust in the finished work of Jesus. Rest in what he has done for you. Stop trying to earn your salvation. It's insufficient. God will not accept it because it's not perfect. So accept God's perfect work for you through Jesus. Today, humble yourself and say, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. But I believe that you're enough. You trust in what he's done for you in the gospel. You see, when Jesus cried out to tell us die, it means your savior has perfectly obeyed. Your enemy has been slayed. Your sin debt has been paid. Your king has conquered the grave. And today you can be saved. If you will put your faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a decision that every one of us has to make. Like a turnstile going into a stadium. You go through one at a time. And though on that great and glorious day, there will be millions upon millions of believers around the throne. Everyone came in one at a time. Where everyone at some point said, God, I am broken. And I am a sinner. But I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you rose from the dead for me. And I am going to follow you for the rest of my life. That's the offer of the gospel. If today you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus by faith. 